0: Molus am hello House. welcome to the Liberty and Friends podcast. That's right, Liberty and Friends, which is under the big Liberty show stable. That's right. it's me it is me. Um, your favorite fat boy, Big Daddy Liberty. It's another week. Um, I feel like this has been one of those extra special weeks where you know our politics has been lit and uh, we're gonna get into that today. Um, I have a very special, special, special show for you guys today as we unpack the State of the Nation address that was delivered by the President of the Republic of South Africa, Mr. Cyril Ramaphosa. What was in it for you? Did you think there's anything good about it? Um, any silver linings that you took away as an individual that you thought, hey, this might improve my quality of life in the next 12 months? Or, you know, are you a bit more cynical and critical and wary, perhaps, of our body politics? So I have two interesting guests in studio who are going to discuss this. Um, both from the Institute of Race Relations, Mr. Nicholas Lorimer, who is, of course, one half of a podcast series that you guys may be following called Two Crickets in a Thorn. You can check that out on IONO or any of your favourite um, podcast uh, centres. And, of course, another voice who you may recognise. I had him about two weeks ago on the show, and as we discussed all things China, and that's another Nick, um, Nicholas Babaya. Uh, both of them are in studio but before I get to any of those guys it is time for the weekly rant the weekly weekly rant uh, five minute rant by your yours truly as today I am pretty much annoyed by the economic freedom fighters not for what they did in Parliament. I think that's actually re- relatively irrelevant because we kind of all expect them to do that, right? That's that's their politics now—the politics of of spectacle and disruption—and you know, nothing necessarily. If if you want to find the most asinine um, form of politics in South Africa, just search EFF and you're covered. But what I take exception to, and I I I am becoming ever increasingly worried by is the politics of hatred that they're beginning to casually have people sort of accept as being somehow normal what do you mean by by, by that big daddy well let's look at the record of history slightly for a moment generally speaking and historically speaking it has always been the leftist leaning politician whether they are a a fascist uh, you know a, a socialist or a communist who has always had some sort of populist leader rise from within their ranks and lead a charge, a horde, if you will, of individuals who are rallied around some sort of ethno-nationalist message and often at the detriment of some sort of minority. Again, you can go down the line in history to find examples of that. But the most apt example, I think, and one which registers on a personal level for me as someone who's converting into the Jewish faith is Adolf Hitler in the 30s, mid-30s. Here's a chap who rises to the ranks of the National Socialist Party in Germany, almost like our EFF, National Socialists. In fact, if you look at the two parties' manifestos, they're almost a carbon copy of each other, but that's separate issue for another day. Uh, but you have this populist character, Adolf Hitler Ad- Adolf Hitler, I'm saying it like adult film. Adolf Hitler <laughs> um rises to the ascends to the party's throne um and leads a a rabble, a horde, if you will, uh, grants of these singularly uniformed individuals who march through the institutions of society with violence and obviously and a, a stated objective to target minorities. And in that case, it was the Jewish community who was at the receiving end. It began with the rhetoric against Jews. You know these these filthy Jews and inverted comers who are taking all the jobs. Who are, are the merchants of society preventing ordinary Germans from entering business. That was the sort of rhetoric of the day. And nobody in that society, or very few people of standing, stood up and said, hey, guys, this is wrong. And it's it's going to head in a particular direction, which I don't think once the, the tiger's out of that cage, anybody can then essentially hop off of. And these traps then realizing that there's not much in the way of resistance in society you know um yeah the race is history you know they they, they ascended to the throne uh, disrupted institutions trashed and burnt institutions in fact um as most leftists like to do in that case they burned parliament um so the moral of the story and why i am almost fearful of what I'm seeing happening today, is that no one is pushing back necessarily against the hatred of the EFF. We're all sort of caught up in the theatrics of them. Oh, you know, why are they wearing um, uh, overalls in parliament and not suits? That was like the sort of first asinine criticism of them. Oh, why are they taking so many points? All of the stuff is irrelevant. What you're actually seeing here is a group of very hateful individuals beginning to stand up, feel emboldened, Um, to push their rhetoric of hatred, and it's targeting minorities in South Africa. If you are a white South African, you are on the receiving end of the hatred of the EFF, and it's being casually normalized, especially by the media, who don't really call it out either. They kind of are goading it on, you know, sort of um, unintentionally on the one hand, and also latently on the other. Um, And ever increasingly, Indian South Africans are on the receiving end of the vitriol, the hate, by Julius Malema. So... These are things that I'm saying are a product of a history we've seen before. And no one is actually taking the moment or the time, rather, to call this out and actually, like, in the moment, say, Julius, why do you hate and why are you so hateful towards... um, groups of people, uh, you know, why are you, what's what's the end goal here? Because even if you're an EFF supporter, and this is sort of last minute of this, even if you're an EFF supporter, and you genuinely believe in the, the leftist dystopia that your policies are advocating for, at what cost do they come, is what I want to ask you. Because surely th- that sort of society, if the EFF ever won power, um, God forbid, uh, you know, it it, ca- it surely came at some sort of cost. And is that cost essentially a divided society where people are hateful and distrustful of each other, where you um, are essentially part of a fascist machine that picks out those losers in society and you know victimizes them? Like, at, at what cost is it, what cost is acceptable to you for your party to win power? And if if that cost of a hateful society that targets minorities is unacceptable to you. Why are you not calling out Julius now at this point of your quote-unquote revolution? That's the question I really have for you because at some stage for those of us who are outside of this, and by the way, I'm talking about also the millions of black South Africans who don't support the EFF, who don't support their message of hate, and look at them and go, guys, what's going on here? Surely this was not what we promised each other in 1994, that that pact, that social pact, if you will, that actually said, you know what, it's not that we're going to forget our history we will definitely honor history, but you actually look beyond the racial nitpicking mm-hmm. and you start building a society, a cohesive one, one which actually opens up um, South Africa as a home for all. Like at some stage, you've got to make that decision for yourself. And I'm gonna leave that with, with you guys, especially because this is really directed at EFF supporters if you do listen to this podcast, and most of you left as cowards don't. Uh-huh. Um, but you've got to ask, answer that question of what is the acceptable social cost of the hatred, the politics of hatred, that I'm blindly following, or at the very least, I'm uncritically following. <coughs> anyway, that's my rant for the day, um, or for this week. It's something which really is concerning me, and I want us to sort of think about and, um, and fight against to a large extent. And speaking about um, the EFF, they were part of course of the State of the Nation Address, and we're gonna be unpacking the President's speech, and essentially what happened in that House um, this week, after the short break. Welcome back, guys, to Liberty and Friends. As I said, we have a very interesting um, duo of, of, uh, of Nicks. Both of them are Nicks. Um, so I'm going to struggle a little bit. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to do this. I'm going to call the one B and the other one L because it's Nicholas Babaya and the other one is Nicholas Lorimer. So if you hear about a lot of Bs and Ls, just, you know, forgive me. Um, chaps, firstly, welcome to the show, Nicholas Lorimer and Nicholas Babaya. Guys, how are you doing? Good thanks to
1: you, Clay. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm show. doing
0: pretty well. Awesome guys. Look, let's hop straight into it. We only have about 30 minutes or so. Um, let me start from the top because here's a president who um and for a moment, let's actually look at what happened in the house before we get to the contents of the speech. I've just gone on a bit of a rant now, a bit of a long-winded one, about you know the dangers of what we're beginning to see being normalized in our politics. Um, and I'm not taking issue per se with the, the filibustering. This is politics, guys. Filibustering is done in every in every, uh, legislature or parliament around the world, or even Congress. Um, it takes different forms, of course. Some more sophisticated than the others. Um, but there's something offish about the EFF's desperate attempt to just almost clasp at something in the House that could give them a legitimate reason to disrupt It wasn't there?
1: Yeah, I, I think clearly they've got some huge issue with Praveen Gordan. Um, I'm still not that clear why they hate him so much. But they don't hate someone that much without a reason. So it's quite obvious that they're going for Praveen and they're acting almost like a like the analogy I heard used once was like an animal. When an animal's backed into a corner, it mm. lashes out. And that's exactly the reaction we had from mm-hmm. uh, the EFF uh, when the VBS scandal was really big news. They were sort of criticising reporters and saying really horrible things. So it's clear that I think they it almost looked to me vulnerable, the way that they reacted. And clearly they were there to disrupt. They announced it in the media. They said, we're going to disrupt the state of the nation before. And that's why it's really annoying when they're pretending like they're talking on a point of order and they're, they're abusing the civility of Parliament to disrupt Parliament. They're, they're taking advantage of other people being nice. So, yeah, I, I think it was really ugly. Um, look, very entertaining. I'm, never, I'm not going to lie about that. Cigley, or Nick, you, you comment. And actually, Cigley, if, if you don't mind, I'd actually like to ask you a question because you've been to these EFF rallies. Isn't mm. that right? Okay, Nick, you, 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 you say your mind first. Yeah, so...
2: The thing is, they went They went to kind of push the two main things that the uh, racial nationalist camp of the the ANC is currently very keen on. So the one is delegitimizing anything about the settlement of 94. Oh. So the evening starts off with an attack on uh, the FWD Clerk, despite the fact that he's been in, I think, basically every sonar, or at least most of them, the EFF decided to pick up uh, on him now, and they sort of... It wasn't really that focused, but it was like a little swipe at him. He needs to be kicked out of the house because he's a criminal and he's a thing of of apartheid. Now, you know, I don't want to get into the whole uh, record of de Klerk and that uh, kind of thing, but I think that, generally speaking, the fair reading is that he did a lot to reform the country. He maybe did things that were not good. He maybe did things that were good. um, But he was an integral part of that process, and, uh, you know, that was recognized when he and Mandela won that sort of joint Nobel Peace Prize.
1: So so, so that's that's you,
2: the yeah. first part of the project is the general sort of delegitimizing of the settlement, demonizing whites, um, saying that there can never be forgiveness that sort of thing. Um and the second part, mm-hmm. which, which is exactly what you 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 know you talked about in your, your opening rant of the show, um, the second part was to go for Pravin Gordon, which has been a project of the racial nationalists within the ANC for a while now, the sort of Ace Makashulas and stuff. We've heard that at the National Executive Council of the ANC. They've uh, they've attacked Pravin Gordon. There's been some attempts to throw him out. And so I think at this point that it's fairly clear that, uh, I mean, the IRR often talked about how the EFF is basically still the ANC. They may f- pretend to be outside of it, but actually they're, they're just a part of the organization, of the mm. culture. A lot of them still hang out in the same places. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are still you know, social friends or interact regularly. They call and WhatsApp each other. I mean, literally, same WhatsApp group, mm, I'm sure. <laughs> <For laughs> um, and
1: Mbalula, I think he said at one point that, that the Julius Malema should come home to the ANC. Exactly,
2: <laughs> and, and, and and Malema kind of toys with that idea every now and again, right, that uh, we will come home if, if our demands are met. So the fact that they're so directly helping the sort of Ace Makashula faction of the ANC makes me think that there is perhaps uh, an actual f- formal behind-the-scenes alliance there, that uh, the two of them are, or an informal one, rather, Um, that they are coordinating action in some way. Mm. So a lot of what happened last night, I think, was really just faction fighting in the ANC being brought out into the public. And if you look at Cyril's speech, which we will get onto in a second, I'm sure, Mm. um, you can see that a lot of it is framed in a way to attack the other faction of the ANC Mm. and to boost his own faction. So the the internal
0: drama of the ANC has completely consumed our politics in Mm. Parliament. Chaps... Um, I, re- I really want us to get into speech, but there's something you wanted to raise, Nick?
1: Yeah, I just wanted to ask because you, uh, you, you had your one video uh, where you actually went to an EFF rally and you spoke to all these people. I just want to ask when you were there, you know, we saw the video, but was your impression that most people that rally were a bit like the parliamentarians that we just saw? What do you think?
0: do Not at all. Most people there were drunk. <laughs> um, you, like, okay, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Like, I, I, I mean that. Like, I'm not even trying to be be funny. Like, I have people, like a bar at the rally. Like, I think a lot of people came there drunk. Um, I mean, we we were actually now commenting. <laughs> 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 like, I was actually commenting about this with with the cameraman. I, I didn't want to put it on on um, on the show because you know, I mean, some of these people. You know, I do like to preserve people's dignity, but. Um, it was weird to see how intoxicated people were like i didn't get the impression that people came there to genuinely listen to content theirs was to be a part of something like like this idea of you know we all are clad in red and you know it's festive and you know it's like a big party you know Mm -hmm. it really was to a large extent um because you saw this in how when when just quickly recap on this video when when the level of interest when you then do engage a, like a group of them, they kind of go, oh, wow, there's, actually, there's an actual discussion happening yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Um As opposed to the festive and the festivities. So I don't think, and I'm also hearing this, I think there's a, rec- a tacit recognition of this in the EFF because they've recently done like a little reshuffle of their own where they've made, they've removed Boise um, as the speaker, sc- excuse me, the spokesperson of the party, replacing him with Viani Pambo, who if you remember, was part of the fees must fall, so he was rewarded for that nonsense. Anyway, um, and Dr. Ngozi is now being head up uh, put as the head of political education in the party. How how wonderfully <laughs> uh, <laughs> very Leninist. <laughs> uh, my uh,
2: my <laughs> co podcast host, the other two cr- the other cricket in the thorn tree, uh, Gabriel, wrote a um, an article about his visit to an EFF rally and just sort of the atmosphere and stuff. And he gave the sense that, um, you know, basically a lot of people were there, he felt, because they believed in the sort of non-racial nationalist versions of the party. <coughs> they believed in it fighting against corruption. They believed in it uh, as a vehicle for service delivery. Now, I think, you know, a, a cynical folk here, we can probably say that that's, that's uh, silly, but um, the EFO has been very good in marketing itself as the most anti-corruption party. Mm. Uh, a lot of South Africans... Do believe even after some of the VBS scandal stuff came out, still believe that the EFF is the best
0: vehicle for fighting corruption. Um, and a part of it is why I, I mentioned in the rant that it's it's the uncritical and some of the unthinking people. I mean, these are very really, these are smart people, right? They they're self interested also, but they're uncritical in in just blindly following these people who give you a version of themselves even when the evidence stacks up in the opposite direction but guys i must get into the sona speech itself um firstly kudos to this president for perhaps how he held his 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 decorum if i can call it that i mean it wasn't a jacob zuma-esque situation where you know the moment there's a first point of order you know his bodyguards rush in and surround him if you remember those scenes Mm. from back then i mean it, it, it. and, and it's part of what I'm, I said, I meant, sorry, when I said online that Ramaphosa isn't Jacob Zuma. Like the EFF are going to struggle to try and create and vilify him in the same vein that they did with Jacob Zuma. Um, because also when he then does get into the speech... Firstly, he delivers it with a, a relative eloquence. He's engaging. You crack a joke here and there. Um, again, I'm being. This is the only bit that I'll be charitable towards Ramaphosa because the content was absolutely trash panda stuff. Um, and let's get into the content. The first thing I wanted to really look at is he begins. I think the first bit of the speech is actually pretty good because it is just concessions around look, we've just stuffed up. Like he obviously didn't say that in an in, in yeah. outright sense, but there was a tacit um, admittance that look, Things are not going well, and a lot of it is self-inflicted, and some of it really is just out of inaction from us. Um, but the one line that made me sort of raise my eyebrow, the first lie, really, was, uh, and i quote, we've acted firmly against state capture, close quote. The first question I ask myself is, but who's behind bars, and who's genuinely facing the threat of the law, fellas?
1: yeah the zondo commission has gone on and on and on and uh, look sometimes these things do need to go on for a very long time but nobody has gone behind bars and I mean, the thing I always find hilarious is that this is the guy who was the, the deputy president under Jacob Zuma. We can't forget that. It's not like he's some Bernie Sanders outsider coming mm. in to save us all. This guy was <laughs> in Ashamed the... Ashamed
0: of <laughs> flying first class?
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who was it that posted a picture on social media? Somebody like someone you know, captured a picture.
0: super him. funny. He's like like <laughs> sort of deer in headlights. Yeah, yeah sorry, but I, I digress. But
1: some, he's acting like he wasn't involved with all of this. Yes. I mean, the, the, the second thing I would say is that, you know, it was good I think that he he mentioned at the beginning of the speech we continue and the way he said it was we continue to struggle with various challenges that's kind of the way he phrased it and my you know how many years is it since 94 now Mm. at what point do you start to say what party was in power all this time and like where was I all this time You know, one of the interesting things about US politics is that, for example, many of the people that were really big in the Bush administration nowadays have become unpopular in the Republican Party because Bush got really unpopular afterwards. Mm -hmm. But it seems to us that once Zuma's gone, it's like, an, it's like pressing defaults so when you're playing your PS1, you know? It's like the whole thing resets and we have the new Dawn and we go back mm. to normal. So yeah, okay, who's this nice guy? That, yeah. oh, like no, that,
2: that has been the attempt that uh, Cyril's been uh, kind of going for, is, is to create this narrative that everything that's gone wrong over the last 10 years... and lot of things have gone wrong, um, has been a result of the state capture community. So that's what I meant by how the the speech was about an attack on the other faction, the ANC. Mm. The people he's talking about, the state capturers, are there in parliament with mm. him. And the mm. speech is aimed at demonizing them and at attacking them. Um, so that's that's the one thing is that he's trying to create this narrative that uh, he was he was separate from things but of course we know he wasn't before he was deputy president he was also chair of the uh or oh, i think during as well mm-hmm. he was the chair of the anc's deployment committee but one of the other th- problems with so he he lists problems and he's you know he's trying to give the appearance that he's being sort of honest with what the problems are and you know he did mention some good stuff he acknowledged how bad load shilling was um but then he goes on to talk about achievements. so firstly there's a state capture thing which is rubbish but secondly he talks about you know our education being great and he you know he says, congratulations to the eighty one percent or whatever have passed, but if you look at the number of kids who are in school, never mind those that drop out or don't get to a trick, who are in school but can't, for example read for meaning um there's huge numbers now it's it's I think more than fifty percent mm-hmm. uh, of students in the early grades like uh, grade five six around there who are unable to read for meaning. Oh um at all basically. So the education system has
0: become a complete sort of youth warehousing structure. Mm. I mean th- what you're mentioning came out of the the pillar assessments which happened at grades three, six and nine, um which basically found that a lot of kids mm-hmm. do not understand the content that they, you know, when, when tested independently of, of the content that they've literally been learning um <laughs> for the last three years in most cases. They don't understand it. Um, in fact, some of the teachers don't even understand it. But, um, it we'll, we'll get into education just now because I, I had to take some notes that I want you guys to sort of chew on. Okay. Um, but let, let, let me come back to this issue of of state capture in and of itself and why the, I, I think there's a bit of sleight of hand politically. State capture is not what we're seeing play out to the Zondo Commission. It's not what we're seeing play out in the newspapers. The original state capture, the real dangerous state capture, and you guys know I'm going with this, is the actual cater deployment itself. And you've alluded to it, uh, uh, Lorimer. The idea that politicians get to decide, you know, and, and fill... Um, yeah administrative positions with cronies and cadres, and not necessarily people who are loyal to the Constitution and their jobs, but people who are loyal to them as the politi- politicians. This is part of their National Democratic Revolution strategy as the ANC. Why are we not hearing a lot more criticism of that element of, sta- so of state capture? I think
2: I think uh, it was Helen Ziller who first started using the term popularly um, to mean exactly that, which is the, the party controlling the state. So the state loses its independence, and it basically becomes... Um, just an organ of the ANC, just a branch of the ANC. Uh, But the the meaning was twisted by the media, who never took Zilla seriously when she said that, even though it was a very serious problem. And then it was twisted to mean, oh, it means when uh, the Guptas control the state. Mm. But the only reason that the state could be so captured thus... Um, that the politics and the, the factional fighting inside the ANC could become such a prevalent part of our life is because of catered point, because mm-hmm. of state capture. When every institution is part of the ANC, then the whole of the society is involved in the ANC's internal struggles.
1: Yeah, you know, I think catered uh, deployment as a problem has most become clear, even from the ANC's side itself, is in the education department. Mm. Uh, Angie Motseke had some horrible things to say, for example, about Satu. We, we When we talk about uh, this kind of state capture, we must also remember the trade unions also playing a very, very big role in this. Mm. But actually things like Scom SAA, when you go and examine, for example, the number of employees these uh, SOEs have compared to how many they need to have or similar sized companies have, I think I did a quick calculation. it might not be that accurate, but SAA, I think has, a got, has got about four times the number of staff per aircraft than say Singapore Airlines, mm. which is one of the most uh, one yeah, of the best airlines airline, in the world. Yeah. yeah, you should fly Singapore. it's really great. Um, so, no, this is a huge, huge thing, and it, I think it's the elephant in the room. I don't I don't think journalists talk enough about this. Now, I'll tell you guys an interesting story. Uh, when I was at university last year, um, Maluski Gaba came and spoke, and I went to hear his speech, and somebody asked this question about catered deployment. Obviously a very uh, knowledgeable student. And his answer was hilarious. He said... The problem is not cater deployment. The problem is sometimes the cater who is deployed. <laughs> and he just, those were his words, <laughs> verbatim.
0: But, but guys, <laughs> very, I, I want to quickly interject here because I think we're painting the, 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 the accurate picture as to why then the next element of what who, um, the president tried to paint Tied to paint yesterday in his speech was this idea of the capable state. Oh, we're building the capable state, and if we build the capable state, everything goes well. And then he started listing, obviously, um, you know, all the 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 the, uh, the let's call it the intentions of this capable state of smart the cities, um, smart <laughs> cities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there's something fundamentally wrong, and I want us to just sort of put our liberal hats on here—not that we took them off, but um, there's something fundamentally wrong about this obsession in South Africa with building up the state and not building up individuals and really families. Let, let's have that, that conversation for a moment. So so there's there's, there's two ways to go at this.
2: The one is a sort of normal liberal uh, response, which is to say that because of the political influence in the state, because of its perverse incentives that are, often exist for state employees, that the state is not a particularly good way of doing things. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a sort of scale of good and bad states, right? So like, for example, the Swiss state, uh, as so much as it exists, um, is very different in capacity to the uh, South Sudanese state, <laughs> right? So I think I think the point is, though, that um, you can't even begin to talk about the capitals, capable state, though, unless you have consequences for people who don't do their job. Now, when you have catered employment, you've infiltrated political appointees so deep into the state, even way beyond the political appointments into actually the sort of civil, permanent, civil service, permanent bureaucracy, that to fire someone is to cause great political consequence. And mm. we've seen this, right? Why can't we fire people from ESCOM even though it's overstaffed? Because the unions are there, because there's Caters there. Why can't we cancel coal contracts because Caters have got the, 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 the oh. contract there and oh. they're paying back to the state. And once you have that integration there, the capable state becomes impossible because you get locked in a box that says, I can't act politically, uh, I can't act to fix things because it would hurt me politically.
1: Mm-hmm. So I'll go very, very fundamentally to why we should be against this sort of thing. And this is going back to some Austro-Libertarian theory. Mm-hmm. So why do we have prices? Have you guys ever wondered that? Why, why does an Apple cost 15 rand or however alpha- much? I don't know how much an Apple costs mm-hmm. on its own.
2: They signal the interaction of how much people want something and how much of it there is.
1: Right. That's exactly what a price is. Okay, so the price is, an in, is actually an indication of scarcity. Mm-hmm. Every mo- so The first rule of economics is scarcity. And as Tomo- Thomas Sowell says, the first rule of politics is to ignore the first rule of economics. <laughs> <laughs> now... If you're a business in a private sector, you have to look out for scarcity and prices because if you don't do that, you're gonna go out of business and your business will fail and you as an owner will starve because you won't have enough money. So you actually have to pay attention to how much stuff there is in the world. If you are a government, those laws don't really apply, and the great uh, Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises wrote the book uh, *Economics uh, Calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth, in which he basically uh, put out in a very strong argument that because of the thousands, in fact millions of interactions that happen in the economy every single day, the government lacks the capacity to make good judgments. Now, that's on a very, very theoretical level. But the reason why I'm saying this is that that if you look at the utter failure that governments have, why is it that SAA has got so much debt and SAFE doesn't? Mm -hmm. It's because that the one has to pay attention to uh, economic forces within the market, and the other one doesn't. If the other one doesn't make money, it just gets a bailout. So this is the problem when we talk about giving the state more and more power. The state, by its nature does not have a good sense of efficiency and inefficiency scarcity and uh, excess within the market and that is why at a a very fundamental and uh, theoretical level this is a bad idea but the fact of the matter is going to south african context our state is just way too big the government interferes in way too much and we actually need to allow people just to buy and sell things and become free but that's the theoretical side of it
0: I'm going to move us on a little bit um, because I think we've sketched the, the, the political overview to a large extent as to what framed the speech. Um, let's look at a few silver linings because, you know, I, I did say in my rant that there should be a little bit of charitable, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, approach to, to the president. Something must be said about a, a an implicit admission that centralizing power when it came to ESCOM had been a problem, and it created because he, he literally says this. It created the corruption. It created the blah blah blah, um, and therefore we've decided to allow municipalities to uh, purchase uh, power directly. Uh, in addition, we're going to bring in more uh, private sector companies to um, to provide to the grid. Um, you know these these um, uh, these bid windows that that Eskom had, had. It had one two. 3A uh, and B, 4, excuse me, 1, 2, th- beds one two three, and then 4A and 4B, which is where we are at the moment. And then the last one is what's called a gas uh, bed, which is basically a lot of these massive gas projects, which are being envisioned as coming online in the near future, will then feed into the grid. Surely that's a, a good thing, fellas? No? Should we not give them kudos for this?
2: Yeah, I think uh, decentralizing stuff is a very good way to tackle, I mean, uh, problems in South Africa. South Africa is a very um, divided, uh, or not so uh, divided, but like very diverse place. There's a lot of difference between a village in Limpopo and the CBD of Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. Um, So I think that any step towards breaking up some of these monolithic institutions that we have in South Africa and localizing them a bit um, is a very good move. And so I think that was probably for me the one really unambiguously good thing in the speech was the allowing municipalities to, uh, to buy electricity. In, yeah. Including,
0: of course, um, Babaya, his his assertion that SCOM itself was well in the process of beginning to break itself up into three separate firms. That is the um, generation, generation, distribution, distribution and, and the sales end, essentially. The, the you know um, yeah uh, thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, I I have one hope from this. I think it's immensely positive. Any, any, anything like this, obviously, is a step in the right direction in the face of all the stuff that's going on. Um, so I have a hope uh, that we can maybe get out of this, and maybe we can move a bit further in the right direction with with power. Now the DA has certainly, I think, come on board, particularly the DA in the Western Cape, with this private energy uh, uh, generation. You know, it's funny. About five years ago, I spoke to some members of DASA back at my old university about why aren't you guys against SAA? Like, is wasting so much money, and they had these, Um, uh, I'm not really sure, you know, that's a tough question. But nowadays, I think you can see a lot of DA people like, yeah, we've got to get rid of these things. So their minds have really been changed. Now, I wonder if the Western Cape can somehow become the first province in the country to just avoid load shedding. Because I, I think that you know they have the political will to do it. They aren't against markets working. Whereas I think in the other provinces, the ANT might have a bit of a hardline Marxist thinking. No, no, this is the best thing. So
2: there'll be a lot more scraping off from corruption and that
1: sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the DA, is, the Western Cape is obviously the best run province in the country. I mean, mm-hmm. there's just no denying that. So if that can happen, I think we could get a case where the Western Cape will become a very big example of what could be done if we just have more uh, private. Uh, uh, pr- uh, production of electricity in the market which we haven't had up until now. Mm. And so this is, is exactly
2: great. one of the reasons why I think the government has been so hesitant to uh, decentralize. And so that's they don't be- want that. <laughs> yeah because because if for example the Western Cape does succeed in avoiding something like load shedding or at least reducing it significantly um, which I believe it actually already has to a small yes. degree in Cape Town. To a
0: large degree technically <laughs> uh, uh, where we have for example in Johannesburg four hours of mm-hmm. load shedding Cape Town only has two, and even then, that two is debatable because sometimes the power comes back like fifteen minutes earlier. I've always been like, mm, please, Lord, <laughs> bring me back to Cape Town. <laughs> I mean, two hours is in in a business if you're a small yeah, business, yeah. those two hours
2: matter. So, so that's a that's a that's a, a great thing. But the political consequences of that are very uh, worrying yes. for the ANC, right? Because if uh, you know, and it doesn't even, you know, you can take sort of party out of it. If one part of the country suddenly starts to become more efficient than the other, then that part is boosted in their political legitimacy uh-huh. and the central government's power weakens. And the ANC as, I mean, it still uses the Stalin's term democratic centralism oh. um, to describe its internal structure. That undermines that kind of centralizing ideology. So so to allow decentralization
0: cuts right to the heart of their ideology and it creates a potential political risk for them. Guys, the, the ESCOM one, I, I, I'm dwelling on a bit because, you know, I, I had a, a podcast last week with Davi Root, and Davi made it, uh, Davi Ruit is a renowned economist, by the way. He made it quite clear. South African gro- growth um, prospects w- are capped Not that they will be at, they are capped at 1% if we do not get rid of load shedding. That, for me, was a very scary thought. He wasn't saying that we'll we'll grow at 1%. He was saying it is capped at 1% because of the ESCOM story. Why is it critically important for South Africa to shake this behemoth, this monkey on the back, so to speak, called ESCOM, really, at a political level and an economic level?
1: Yeah, well, I mean that's a that's a really important thing. If you think how long we've been having load shedding, I mean it's I I remember it when I was a little kid in primary school. You know, I don't know actually when the first year was. I know I know two thousand and eight. Two thousand eight. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it started, and I mean that's a really long time ago. It almost it's us, it seems like a, a part of everyday life. But if you consider that it's capped at one percent. <laughs> You've got to think about all the poor people in South Africa. We're, now, we're a developing economy, and so we really need economic growth. That's actually going to be the best thing to bring people out of poverty. But if we ha- can't grow the economy, I mean, there's very little hope. So that needs to be solved.
0: Sorry, Naruma? Uh, yeah,
2: we're not oh, – so the other problem is we're not going to get out of the uh, growing financial hole that we're in without yes. a lot of growth. So we need to cut spending. For sure. Because that's the other area.
0: Yeah. Sorry, sorry to just preempt you, because I literally wanted to go there next. So that th- this this thing is obviously happening in the context of a country which has slow growth. In fact, almost no growth in real terms. Um, and a, 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 a growing debt mountain that mm. we just, I, I don't see us being able to service in the next three years. And this is a question I wanted to pose to you guys. And I want to hear what you guys have to say. Um, politically, it seemed as though the president completely avoided the conversation that needed to be had when addressing the issue of debt. You can only address debt if you have a growing economy and it outpaces your spending effectively, right? Or alternatively, the state itself cuts back on expenditure quite aggressively in order to, you know, reduce its deficits every year. Well, obviously we, don't have, we don't have the growth um, area. Talk to me about the reluctance, Lorimer around why we don't want to cut the spending who's in the way of the president when it comes to if that was what the president wants to do by the way
2: well i mean so so cyril did say that he wanted to constrain the public wage bill and 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 that kind of thing and reduce the sum of the spending um but you know he said that before and it hasn't happened Mm. because exactly because of the sort of Cada national democratic revolution thing which is Mm. that If he cuts anyone's salaries, he's going to have a big Kosatu march against him, and his position within the party is threatened. Mm. Next time the Ace Magashula faction is looking to cause problems with him, maybe Kosatu will back them. Um, He's in this political bind that's been created because all these special interest groups have so burrowed into the organs of state and the economy um, that to take any decisive action threatens his position. So he has to have real political courage to do any of that. And so far, Cyril has not shown any of that at all. I mean, one of the big problems in this speech, so we've talked just about growth and how mm. it's you know a way to help you get out of, out of financial trouble. Um, on one hand, he says, we're going to implement Tito uh economic plan, his economic reforms, which is something the IRR has endorsed. We mm. think that that plan is a very good step in the right direction. But on the other hand, he says, I'm looking forward to amending the Constitution to allow expropriation without compensation. Mm. These are incompatible things. You Mm. cannot do both because Tito's plan relies on stable property rights. Mm. And if you don't have stable property rights, you can't have growth. So either we can have EWC or we can have growth. And until his... View until his policy reconciles these two things. Talking both sides of his mouth is not going to get mm. any real change.
0: But by th- that does seem to be a big problem in, in in this particular speech. The idea that the cake, uh, the president wanted to have his cake and eat it. Um, the doubling down in in his speech on EWC actually shocked everybody, or not everybody. Um, but it, it sort of elicited murmurs in the house. Uh, because, you know, in sort of pre- the, the prior sentence, he was on a roll. You know, he's he's announcing all these wonderful reforms um, that sort of people got behind, right? They're yeah. like, oh, that sounds good, you know? In fact, I think he'd just finished speaking about, yes, I'm right. My notes uh, point out that uh, he had just finished the crime section, and he had made some good announcements there. You know, the, the bolstering of specialized units, like the anti-gang units, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the establishment of this this university for detectives, detective course. In Hamanskral. Um, in Hamanskral, random <laughs> place, but anyway... (laughs) Um, You know, shout out to Herman Scrawl if you're listening. Um, But the one area we didn't hear from is the statism. And this is what I want you to speak about. The, the, The insistence by politicians in this country that they must control any and all aspects of our lives. For instance, he didn't speak... On the issue of crime, about uh, out against his own minister, who's been threatening gun, legal gun-owning South Africans with essentially confiscating their guns and banning gun ownership. He didn't speak out against threats to all South Africans when it comes to our property rights, which, by the way, includes also Black South Africans. Because often when we have this conversation, people go, oh, "There goes the conversation about white farmers." No, the idea that I, as a Black South African who comes from Emapomolo, with 150 hectares of land, but I'm not considered as a landowner in in any. Of of the surveys done by the state, And, and just wait until, um, so so the way that the
2: sort of expropriation stuff is set up is that mm-hmm. municipalities will have quite a lot of uh, ability to exp- Absolutely. expropriate property. Yeah. And so you're going to have a situation where you're going to have a whole bunch of people living in bond houses, let's say on the edge of Soweto. Um, you know, all of them are black, and the government is going to say, We want to create a black industrialist, a black businessman. So, mm. this whole area is going to be expropriated without compensation for the purposes of land reform, for creating this black industrialist. Mm. Um, and good luck to you. And the potential for abuse of black South Africans is enormous. Absolutely. But they managed to sort of hide it by covering it with this sort of racial rhetoric.
0: It's that statism which I'm saying is yeah. is, is, is the abuse, because you can also lump in the national health insurance in this. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah
1: and, and, and all of this obviously is a move towards more state power, uh, which they always, you know, it's so easy. People must remember it's so easy to move in that direction, but to go the other way around is incredibly difficult because mm. once the government has power, they just absolutely do not want to give it up and we always have to keep in mind the anc's ndr and all of this mm. um you know i think that's the the thing with guns I, I i don't know where this is being motivated necessarily but if there is no actual evidential uh, reasoning behind this then it we could attribute it to the ndr on land, I'm starting to really see now how uh, you know attributing this as like a black-white argument is just so stupid, because mm. it really is not. I mean, we are talking about every single South African's property rights, and this is the way which we need to frame this debate. We, The question you should be asking people is not, are you in favour of expropriation without compensation? You actually need to be asking, are you in favour of your own property rights being taken away? Mm. You need to frame the question in, in that sort of sense. But all of this, of course, is moving towards... Uh, um, concentrating powers in the hands of the state. It's very much a a Leninist view. Mm. uh, And
0: and this is where I think, as we conclude, was the big failure of the speech. It was a speech which essentially advocated for, in a very sleight of hand, and a sly way, the idea that politicians are about to assume for themselves much more powers, which crushed the individual, which crushed the South African family. And by the way, when it comes to the issue of guns, you can bet your bottom dollar that this current government much like the apartheid government and the colonial one before it, is damn afraid of a heavily and highly armed um, black populace in in, in this country. The gun control laws in this country, um, albeit are harder to see, um, through a racial lens like you could maybe in the past are still very much racially motivated to a large extent because if you're going to be taking the property rights, firstly, if you're going to be delivering poor services to this black population who are mostly poor, if you're going to then be advocating for taking control over their lives and also taking their property rights, of course you wouldn't want them to be armed, to be able to resist a politician and an official, ba- uh, you know, sort of banging at their gate as I sort of use a personal example now, um, you know, demanding something from you? The the ANC believes very much in, uh, in
2: Mussolini's philosophy, which is that everything inside the state, or the party in this case, nothing outside of it. Um, and that includes the, the control of any means of violence. Uh, there can be no centre of power outside of the ANC. And that's the central idea of National Democratic Revolution. Mm. And guns are a fundamental challenge to that. And so no matter uh, you know, what the crime statistics are, no matter what the arguments and the evidence showing that gun ownership really doesn't drive crime, that in fact it are, you know gun owners are very law-abiding people, um, the government is going to reject any attempt, I think, to to, to strengthen gun rights, I
1: don't, and I mean, just to add on to that, you know, it may seem totally far fetched that s- somehow the government could go rogue and start killing people one day. But the the point, you, you <coughs> Marikana, you, you, well, exactly. So Marikana is is kind of a small, little glimpse. It's almost like the canary in the coal mine, you can say. Mm. But I think the the sort of bigger example, really close to South Africa, is Zimbabwe. And I'm not talking about. The land invasions. I'm talking about the Gukurahundi, mm. uh, in in which they just massacred many uh, Ndebele. Uh, so you know, stuff like that happens. I'm not. S- I'm not saying the ANC is going to do that, yeah, but you I'm need to, the whole point is that you need to measure laws based on what the worst possible scenario <laughs> is, not what the best possible intentions are. Uh, <coughs> yeah,
0: guys. As I wrap us up, um, your final thoughts on the speech. Generally speaking, is this something which would inspire the individual to go, oh, my life will be much better in the next 12 months to, you know, due to the things I heard in the speech. Uh, Lorimer, uh, first. Uh, so I think for me, in a lot of ways, it was the quintessential
2: Cyril speech, mm. which is that it has a lot of rhetoric that I think is quite nice about, you know, building a South Africa for all South Africans, to not let anyone divide us. Um, it's, it's got all this like, nice, uh, the, the package it comes in is quite cool. Uh, that, that that was very nice about it and that's not unimportant um rhetoric does affect the sort of general way that the country works and views itself but fundamentally it has these contradictions in it which cannot be resolved and until the big ones nhi uh, prescribed assets and ewc are dealt with until they are killed without any ambiguity then we're not going to be he hasn't taken any of the difficult decisions that we need to save this country
1: yeah you know for, for me the the one highlight was the private generation of electricity. I think that has the potential to really you know create a good example if the Western Cape takes that with both hands. I think that's the the biggest potential good out of the speech, but to be perfectly honest, whatever else Sir Ramaphosa said whether it's true or false the mo- if you have this threat to property rights in the country, everything goes out the window. There can be no smart i mean they can you can try build one but what motivation does anyone have, a foreign or domestic, to invest if you cannot be assured that your property is going to be your property? If you do not have that, as far as I'm concerned, you know any of these really big uh, pompous plans that we have just go out of the window. And so that's just a completely fundamental thing. And if this country ever wants to prosper, it has to completely do away with that. My thoughts.
0: Nice. Thank you very much for that. That was the, the two next... Um, wow, I should actually call a... A podcast called that you know, the two Nicks, they'll slow bleed you. Um, from the Institute of Race Relations, that's Nicholas Babaya, and of course, Mr. Nicholas Lorimer, who are both writers and analysts here. Guys, thank you very much for joining me on this episode of Liberty and Friends, and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. As again, we look at the broader implications of the speech, you know, not necessarily going into the meat and potatoes of oh, he said this about this, and you know, what, what were the broad strokes that you need to be aware of? and. How do they impact on your quality of life as a South African? Guys, thank you so much for listening to the show. Remember, the Big Liberty Show brings you other shows on its platform every Monday at uh, 3 p.m. We release Blacks Only. Blacks Only, that's right. That's the show that literally pokes fun at society's obsession with um, things like race and gender, you know. (laughs) Superficial things And actually argues that the real diversity in society Is intellectual And I have some awesome faces on there Which I think you should watch out for Um, And of course on Wednesday the big liberty show itself Comes out, the flagship show A variety show um, Which I didn't put out this week I'm really sorry about that I need to um, try and put out today (coughs) I had a very interesting episode actually Which I'll try and put out either this weekend on Zionism And the Trump deal of the century I think you guys need to watch that I'll try and put it out this weekend. And, of course, this podcast, which comes out every Friday. Guys, thank you so much for listening. And remember, never trust a commie.